Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. If there was going to be a toast to you at that party in the future, what would they be toasting you for? What's your legacy? How good are you at looking to the long term? In many ways, as writers, it's kind of our bread and butter. Writing a book is a long-term endeavour. Many of the authors we've had on this show admit they've lived with their characters for years, sometimes decades, before they ever see the light of day. But conversely, we need to fund our lives. We simply can't wait until our next book is ready. So the business of writing can become a hunt for the next paycheck. Jumping from one thing to the next, our goals, can become very short-term. My guest today is Ella Saltmarsh, writer, podcaster and co-founder of The Long Time Project. Her mission is to help us look up from the daily grind, to create a clearer ambition for our future and the future of those around us, not just in our careers, but in everything that we do. Chapter 1. Long Timeism. Many of the issues we face today require a vision, a long-term plan. But as humans, we're no good at that. Take the climate crisis, for example. We know we need to act to save our future. But the future seems such a long way off. The problem seems so large and insurmountable. And the short-term sacrifices just don't seem worth it. We find it hard to look past today. It's in our nature. And that's why, in order to tackle humanity's biggest threats, the concept of long-timism is so important. This is quite a crazy time to be alive. Life feels like it's incredibly chaotic and like it's getting more chaotic through things like the pandemic, the climate crisis, the cost of living crisis. And I think all of that means it's harder and harder to look up from the everyday. And so we're kind of stuck in this myopia. And the problem is that that is having a really bad impact on us as individuals, but also collectively. So on a personal level, this short-termism is leaving us overwhelmed, stressed, feeling like we're powerless. But on a bigger level, it is threatening our collective futures, like our inability to engage with the future might mean that as a species we've not got much future left and it's kind of into that space that we created the long time project and the work that we do is all about kind of stretching the way that we do time so helping us develop these longer deeper time frames that yes will improve our lives today but will also enable us to lead lives that leave a positive legacy on the world. And so at the heart of what we're doing is about supporting all of us to be better ancestors. And there's so many different ways of doing that work. Like there is no one right way of getting long time. And part of what we need to do is learn to build that muscle. It's almost like it's a, it's a, you know, we've got pretty flabby. We've got out of shape when it comes to engaging with the future. And so what we're doing is providing lots of different ways for people to build that muscle. And, you know, we're constantly discovering new ways of doing it. 
And I say this as someone who is actually very bad at engaging with the long time. I think this whole, you know, the irony of this, this work is that traditionally I'm someone who finds it really hard to think about the future, who finds it really hard to plan. And if you'd told me a decade ago, I'd be doing something that was about thinking like a hundred, a thousand years into the future, I just would have been really bemused because I would have been like, well, I can't do that. And so, you know, at the heart of this is this understanding that, um, you know, we need support, we need help to, to do this thing, to get long time so that we can have better lives. We're used, aren't we, Ella, to living in a world in which we, we can pretty much have what we want whenever we want it. So we're used to being able to go into a, a shop or a store and, you know, buy something for lunch and it will always be there for us. We're used to living in a just-in-time economy. And then over the last couple of years, we got a huge dose of time back in the form of lockdown. But that came with delays in the delivery of things that we would normally, you know, expect to be immediately hand. Do you think, is there any way that, that good can come out of the last couple of years and that has it has it made people think about their use of time and indeed even where they might now live there'll be people listening to this that live perhaps in a different place to where they were at the beginning of lockdown do you think the last couple of years have made us re-examine our concept of time and the lives that we live and the way that we live those lives I think it has for some of us you know, for some of us, and arguably those of us with the privilege, did find ourselves with different time during the pandemic. And lockdowns did provide us with the space to lead our lives differently. And yes, I know loads of people who are, have changed their jobs, you know, the whole great resignation, change where they're living and how they're living. And so I think for some of us, it was this reflective time of change. But for other people, it was a time that has just exacerbated the crisis conditions that they're living under, you know, it's exacerbated poverty and inequality. And when you don't know, you know, if you're going to be able to afford to eat next week, it's really hard to get long term. So I think, you know, as with so much in our society, we're seeing this divide. And it feels like a really important moment to kind of clarify that being long term doesn't mean neglecting the problems of today. There are many different ways of being long term, some of which are about, you know, going to Mars and uh, making sure a tiny number of humans survive, whatever happens. And, and that's not what our work is about. So our work is actually about the long term of the collective and of all species on this planet. And it's important to clarify that because being long term for the majority has a very different route and a different feel to being long term for a small minority who can afford it. It's a crucial point, isn't it? Because just to stay on lockdown for one more second, we hear in the press the notion of a shared experience, which I think for me couldn't be further from the truth, because I'm very, very convinced that my own experience would have been different to yours and certainly would have been different to someone that lives on the 13th floor of a tower block opposite me um, with three children and no operating lift. I'm sure that wasn't anywhere near the experience that I had. And there's a danger, isn't there, that we default to long-timism for those that can 
afford it rather than thinking actually this is for every single person not just those of us that have you know privilege which i freely admit i am very privileged um to be in the position that i'm in but you're asking people to to consider making changes that benefit not just ourselves but everybody and and that doesn't come easily does it because that's a that really is a brand new mindset that you've got to adopt i mean the thing we often start our work with love with what people love with the places they love with the other humans they love with the creatures they love and we begin our work there and we often begin it in quite an emotional terrain because people have to feel people have to like care is something we feel it's not a kind of abstract intellectual thing and so we often start there and then our work is a kind of often like this expansion of empathy. And so we're trying to get people to expand their empathy to begin with the places, people, creatures they love, but then to start to expand it both kind of horizontally in the present day. So actually, how do you extend that care to people who aren't in those groups, to people who are different from you, to people who are suffering on the other side of the world? But also, how do you extend that care kind of more vertically, although time isn't linear in that way but to the future how do you start to care about the people who haven't come into being yet and those are very creative acts understanding how we kind of stretch our empathy how do we expand our sense of kinship across time and space is key you mentioned creativity let's stick with that because it would be easy to assume that the starting point for all of this is either government policy or it's an individual act is there a role for creatives and creativity and in particular art and culture in helping people see the changes that that need to be made there's a bunch of you know writers artists filmmakers that that listen to this show what can they do to help promote long time thinking yeah i mean art and culture is foundational we live in systems that trap us in the short term. We have an economic, political, social systems that trap us. And the solutions are systemic. But that involves culture because culture and narrative is the soil from which these systems we live in grow. And I think often narrative and culture are dismissed as kind of fluffy, things as luxuries. I know traditionally in the kind of social and environmental policy space, there was always this idea that you do the real work and then you just tell some stories about it. And that was the main role of story to kind of tell you know, to talk about the real work. And similarly, culture was thought of as a kind of luxury as a frippery and really non essential. But you know, that, that that couldn't be further from the truth. Actually, art and culture is the base, the foundation from which all our policy, our economics, our political systems, our law, they all come from our shared culture. And there was a uh, years ago, I was at a systems conference at this international system change conference. And I was on this all female panel talking about the role of story in systems change. And we were being followed by an all male panel on the hardware of systems change. And I was so cross because, and I said it in, on the panel, I was like, if the panel after us are talking about the hardware, we're talking about the operating system. Story is foundational. 
And so, you know, as people who write stories, it is helpful for us to be reminded of the power of, of what we do. And a lot of the power of our work comes because of the emotions that it engenders. So, you know, the root of the word emotion comes from the Latin movare, to move. So our emotions are what move us. And I think traditionally in the world of social change, you know, and economics and across our systems, um, we have this idea of rational economic man. And I say man because, you know, it was a concept invented by men uh, and traditionally applied to men. And, you know, this, this rational economic man always acts in his own self-interest and is incredibly, is an individual, is this kind of island. And actually, you know, we, we know now that is not how we work. We're like these really messy, emotional beings. We're so collective in what we do. You know, we often don't even act in our own self-interest. And so if we're wanting to change, we have to start swimming in the sea of emotions. And so much of my work now, you know, above and beyond the long time project is about helping movements understand the power of culture and narrative. In terms of helping people incorporate this long time thinking into their daily lives now so that they can make a fundamental difference to the generations that come after them. Could we talk about the long time academy? Because you've put together a toolkit and a fantastically immersive and interesting and podcast is that all aimed at trying to help people that might be listening to this to incorporate this sort of thinking into their daily lives is that what you're trying to achieve yeah absolutely so the long time academy is a podcast that we've produced um in partnership with headspace studios and scenery studios and there's been so many creative minds involved in this because we exactly as you say we wanted to create this immersive exploration that helped us both tell systemic stories so understand how have these systems that we live in that trap us in short-termism like how did they come to be and then how are they being changed and to do that in a way that felt spacious and kind of magical which often isn't the way that existential risk feels it can feel quite scary so in addition to the main episodes each episode comes with a separate meditation the idea is that the meditations enable you to feel the ideas you hear in the podcast so on the one hand the podcast is about helping you intellectually understand the issue the practices that you can download wherever you get your podcasts enable you to feel it and then we've created lots of different tools to enable you to integrate these ideas into your life so some of those tools are very simple like the long time cards which are a set of reflective questions and some are more detailed so we've created um, a workshop that people can take to any institutions that they work in and run a three-hour workshop to help their organizations become more long-term what we're wanting to do, there is a movement already happening in this space. There are people already pioneering this work across the economy, politics, law, etc. And so part of what we're doing is kind of bringing them together, adding momentum to that movement and helping listeners work out what they want to do. How can they be good ancestors? Thinking about the future, thinking about 
someone they care about today. So often we begin by asking people to think about a small person they care about. It could be a child, a grandchild, a godchild, niece, nephew, children and friends. And then to kind of fast forward to the future, to that child's 90th birthday and to think about the world that will be around then. You know, we're looking at the end of the century, the beginning of the next century. And then to think about if there was going to be a toast to you at that party in the future, what would they be toasting you for? What would they be thanking you for? Like, What's your legacy? And enabling people to start to feel into those kinds of questions and to take the time, which, you know, is so hard in, in this crazy world to actually think about what we want our legacies to be and, and to start making them happen. Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now, for the second time, we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Our writing competition is back. In Series 3, we set you a writing challenge based on the lessons we've uncovered on this show. We broadcast the two winning entries at the midpoint of Series 4. This time, we're setting you a new challenge. Over Series 4 and Series 5, we've followed the preparation of adventure athlete Kaz Lander, as she and her partner prepared to row unsupported around the coast of Great Britain. Remind yourself of what that challenge might feel like by listening to the two episodes in Series 4 and the bonus episode in Series 5. Then, in no more than a thousand words, try to bring that challenge to life. Two characters, one ocean rowing boat, and the vast coastline of Great Britain. With that backdrop and your own imagination, feel free to go wild. At the end of the series, we'll pick a winner, will pay one writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of Series 6, and will also donate the same amount to Kaz's chosen cause, the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. But now, back to the show. Chapter 2. A Good Ancestor The concept of being a better ancestor is such a powerful call to action. It makes you think so clearly about the legacy you're going to leave behind, and it holds your future self accountable to the decisions you make now. Can you say you'll be looked back on as a good ancestor, or will you shoulder some of the blame for what's to come? This simple premise and this single question is enough to force you to reconsider the narrative of your life. I found it personally very powerful, and I think it's important to highlight that this certainly isn't just about your direct bloodline and you know this isn't just for people who have children or grandchildren this is really for all of us to think about what it means to be a good ancestor in a broader sense and i think just even asking that question is quite countercultural because we're so myopic we don't think of ourselves as ancestors you know and to realize we are the ancestors you know in a hundred years time people will look back at us as their ancestors and everything all the good things that we enjoy today are because of our ancestors and so it really helps to understand ourselves as being part of this lineage both kind of this lineage of across time but also as part of this wider web of life that we're all part of and part of what we're trying to do is help people see those golden threads that kind of link them to the past and the future and link them to 
different species and different people in other parts of the world today? The notion of a wider web of life is interesting because ordinarily the long time project and the academy and the toolkit and the call to arms and the call to action and all of that would be more than enough for to sustain somebody like you as a day job. But you do so much more than the long time project. And there's anyone listening to this who is a fan of your work and has seen your TED Talks will know that you're a huge fan of learning and also a huge fan of being a polymath, meaning that you are across so many different things that it's very hard to kind of describe what you actually do. So I am in a similar position. I don't have as many things on my um, slate and agenda as you do, but I still find it difficult when people say, what do you do? I find it much easier to talk about how I spend my time or how I divide my time. I don't consider that I am a full-time X, Y, Z, however you want to describe it. But for a very long time, Ella, there would be things that I wouldn't tell people just because I found it hard to explain what I did in a manner that other people would understand. And I wondered, firstly, is that something that you would recognize? And if so, isn't that people like me framing my own reality for the benefit of other people rather than my own. I wonder whether I'd actually been approaching this the wrong way around. But firstly, is is that the inability really to dis- describe what you do in a clear, concise manner? Is that something you would recognize, Ella? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I spent all of my 20s kind of swapping between different roles when I talked to different people. I found it, I was really ashamed of doing so many different things. I thought it was an example of the fact I hadn't grown up yet. And that um, when I grew up, I would just do one thing and I'd have like a one word answer for when people asked me what I did and that somehow my plurality was a sign of immaturity. And so I hid it, you know, and I was spread across very different areas. You know, I'd be working as a creative, as a screenwriter, then I'd be working on kind of international climate policy. And I felt that if I shared the fullness of my work with people in a particular field, that somehow they would have less respect for my expertise, that that would be a form of almost like denigration of the work that I was doing in that space. So yeah, so so for a very long time, I kept different parts of myself hidden. I became this kind of shapeshifter. And, you know, I'd say it's probably, I don't know, over the last 10 years, I've, I've started to integrate much more and have more confidence that the plurality, the diversity of what I do actually brings so much more power to my work. The fact that I sit across so many different fields, that I can make so many different connections, that I have these very different communities that I'm part of is something that's really useful. And I think partly, you know, partly that's a kind of, you know, a personal confidence thing, partly that's about maturity, but I also think it's partly that our world is changing and that the world that I kind of came of age in isn't the world we live in today. And so many young people are developing very plural approaches to their careers. It is no longer a weird thing to have different strings to your bow, to have whether people might call them side hustles, but 
which you know I don't love that term because I think it kind of again it dismisses the power of it but it's much more normal and partly that is out of necessity you know with an increasingly insecure economy very few people have jobs for lives anymore many fewer people are on contracts and so with this more kind of insecure way of working comes a greater acceptance of plurality what I realized I've been doing and almost the way I live my life is that I'm kind of defined by the problems I want to tackle rather than the skills I already have. So there will be things in the world that fire me up, literally like there is heat, they give me heat and they are things that I want to change. And so I set about trying to change them often without the skills I need to change them. But along the way, what I've learned is A, how to learn very quickly, but also how to build collaborations and coalitions with people who do have the skills needed. And I think in this chaotic world that we're moving into, that's the kind, more of the kind of education we're going to need. And we're seeing it, you know, we're seeing new, like, you know, there's new interdisciplinary universities starting up. There's new kind of ways of learning that are much more project-based and about problem solving. And I think they're what future generations are going to need. And that's not to kind of argue against specialism at all. Like we need specialists. Specialists do awesome things in the world. We just don't only need specialists. But, you know, really the power comes from when generalists and specialists learn how to work together, to collaborate and to kind of amplify each other's work. Chapter three. Forging your own path. I love the way Ella pushes back against the status quo, how she's learned to be comfortable with being a polymath, to love her addiction to learning. And the beauty of this way of thinking is that it trickles down into everything you do. As writers, we're often taught that there are certain things we need to do in order to achieve success. Screenwriters in the UK, for example, are told they need to write for a specific set of television shows if they want to break into the industry. But I believe being a generalist gives you the power to ignore that advice, to create your own path, your own content and productions, rather than waiting for permission. So how has this way of thinking changed Ella as a writer? Does she forge her own path? Increasingly, I do. You know, I spent the first part of my career not doing that um, and feeling like I was always in this kind of supplicant role as a writer. I was like kind of going almost on my knees saying, you know, here's my work. Please make it. Oh, no, you're closing the door. Please make it. You know, and then and then once I got an agent kind of hoping they were going to do that role. And and there I realised that it was such a kind of powerless position, you know, especially when it's work that you sometimes have spent years on. And I just, over time, um, became increasingly uncomfortable with those power dynamics. I'm like, I wouldn't do that anywhere else in my life. I wouldn't play this kind of like passive supplicant role around something I care so much about. So why am I doing it with my own writing? So there came a point when I was like, actually, you know what, I'm only going to write things I can get made. And yes, that is going to completely change what I write. It is not going to be like big budget Arctic thrillers anymore. It is going to be much smaller projects. But for me, the kind of successful work is work that finds an audience and that audience can be very small but still it's a way of the work being out in the world 
doing its thing. And so I started to work in more collaborative ways. So I think one of the first projects I did when I uh, made that decision was a project that was funded by King's University. And it was uh, creating immersive audio around depression. And the idea was to use 3D audio to enable medical staff to better understand the experience of depression. And so, you know, I work with sound designers and with an actor to create this experience that then went on to be used um, in medical schools to, to help uh, trainee doctors understand uh, the experience of depression. And on the one hand, I was like, this is not like, you know, this is not the big TV series that I dreamed of. But then I was like, this is work that is really creative, that has had a process that I've loved and learned so much from and is doing something in the world. And I guess my career as a writer almost has been a constant like letting go of what I thought success was. And that's not always easy. You know, yes, there are still times when I was like, oh, I would have really liked to have, you know, written that big TV series. And, you know, like any screenwriter, I've got like a whole chest of projects that I would love to get made. But I think it gives me more power. It helps me be more resourceful about my writing. And it was almost like a compulsion. I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't do it the other way anymore. I couldn't kind of beg anymore. I was like, this is really undignified. And actually, I don't think is the best way to get to get work out in the world. We've talked on this show before about the fact that the value of art is whether it finds an audience, not how big that audience is, not how much the audience has paid for it, not how much they might retweet about it on social media. It's about whether it finds an audience. And I think that your notion of the other way is a really interesting one, because I fundamentally believe that the other way is the wrong way. And that writers and artists and creatives should, if they are able to, forge their own path and create their own art. Because I think that the love that artists will have for that piece of art will be infinitely better than perhaps it would have been had you got the multi-million dollar Arctic thriller series out and away, just because your audience is smaller and they haven't spent as much money on it, in no way means that the value of that piece of art is any less than anything else. Yeah, and I think I think the challenge is is confidence. You know, I promoting my own writing is the hardest thing for me. Like, take me to a war zone, and that feels and you know, and, and I say that because I've worked in war zones in the past. Like, that feels more comfortable in a strange way to me than having to go out there and sell my work. And so the way that I get around that is to make work very collaborative. So as soon as it's not about selling my work, but about selling and not even selling, like about kinds of engaging people in a collaborative project, then that that is something I can get behind. And, you know, I hope one day I would be able to apply the same um, energy and confidence to a, a personal project, something that I'd created solo, as I do to collective ones. But I just, I don't want to kind of hide the fact that that's, it's hard, it's hard. And there is a reason that you know, we have agents, that we have people to sell our work sometimes, because it's such a kind of delicate thing when you've 
created worlds and you've created stories and you know so much of your hidden inner worlds are suddenly exposed to kind of suddenly go out and get in salesperson mode is is really hard and in fact something i i never did it but something i always wanted to do was actually to try and create a different persona so to have a very clear persona for myself who was like the agent persona and i almost i don't wear glasses but i thought about buying a pair of glasses that i'd put on when i was in my agent persona and maybe giving myself a slightly different name like my initials to kind of literally to create a character that i could inhabit to sell my work because i felt that would make it easier and um i never i've never done it but you know maybe one day maybe one day you know some producers will get a call from like a strange sounding person with a weird american accent wearing glasses that don't fit her properly trying to sell her work i have no doubt that one day that day will come but until then i think you're right everything worth doing is hard we wish you a huge amount of success and luck with both the Longtime Project and the Academy. I think it's hugely important work. I do think that writers can learn a lot from it. But for the time being, Ella Saltmarsh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Ella Saltmarsh for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? It's easy to feel like we have very little agency over the world around us, always waiting for governments and big corporations to change because we're too small to make a difference. But through art and culture, we have the ability to change perspectives on a global scale. Emotions are what move people, so make sure you use your superpower. Being a jack of all trades and a master of none is no bad thing. Having many specialties, having connections across many different communities is incredibly valuable, especially for the writing process. And finally, we need to think more long term for the sake of ourselves, our planet and the people we'll leave behind when we're gone. Be a better ancestor. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.